You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning again. I guess I should have said earlier. I'm Tom, and I'm an uh, interim pastor here at Gateway. It's a pr- pleasure to bring God's Word to you this morning. Every week in this series, we've been looking at some basic concepts of faith and spirituality as they're outlined for us in the Apostles' Creed, that ancient summary, uh, not written by the Apostles, but the ancient summary of the Christian faith as articulated by the Apostles. (coughs) And the concept we're going to dive into today is, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word Lord, of course, it's familiar in our speech. Uh, maybe at one time or now you have a landlord, their sort of boss of, of where you live. Uh, and Jesus is called Lord in our passage. Yet the Apostle Paul said that, you know, none can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I don't think that that can mean you can't, you know, without the Holy Spirit's help, pass air through your vocal cords and enunciate uh, those sounds that carry meaning, words, you know, Jesus is Lord. What it must mean, then, is though everybody thinks they know what it means to call him Lord, the meaning of Lord, to understand it, to base your life upon it, is a very big deal. So what does it mean to call Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we have each and every week, we're turning to John, the writings of the Apostle John to find the scriptural foundation for these truths to teach them uh, more deeply and permanently into our spirit. We're going to find four things this morning. We're going to find out that he's, he's sovereign Lord, he's ultimate Lord, he's holy Lord, and because he's Lord, He's also something else. Let's dive in. He's sovereign, Lord. And by way of attribution, we're we're leaning on the works of uh, of Tim Keller in a similar series as we unpack this together as a family. In verses 18 and 19, John records, The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, by the way, lodge that that, that phrase, three or four miles, we're going to pick that up in two weeks. That actually carries a lot of, of impact. They wrote about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were, say it, frightened. Check this out. He's not only walking on water, he's walking through a storm. And the ancients understood the sea in general, and a stormy sea in particular, was a symbol that life was filled with all kinds of unexpected turbulences and powers far, far beyond our control. On land, once in a while, you can have an earthquake and everything goes, you know, crazy, but at sea, it's happening, happening constantly, continually. A storm can come up, waves can appear quickly, winds can change rapidly, and before you know it, your boat is swamped and you're sunk. 
The sea represents the uncontrollable part of human existence. Sea travel, especially in those days, was much, much more arduous and dangerous than travel on land. And, you know, when you're traveling on land, if something's coming after you, you know, you can see it coming. And depending on the terrain where you are, you can run or at least prepare to fight it. But when something's coming at you out of the deep, dark depths of the ocean, right, Jim? You know, you, you don't even get a clue until the very last moment, and it eats you. But he's not slogging through the water. He's not even raising a, a sweat. He's strolling. He's walking along in absolute power over all forces of destruction and death and devastation that the storm represents to all of us. Couple this with the other ancient, uh, the other account in Scripture of a storm where he just speaks to it and says, shh, 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 peace, be still. And the roaring wages, whoosh, and it was gone. Here he's strolling, there he's speaking, both cases, absolute power. To confess Jesus Christ as Lord means that he has, you're acknowledging, he has absolute power. It means he's completely sovereign over everything. And if Christ is not at the center of our life, here's probably why. It's because you think your life is a walk in the park, a walk upon solid ground instead of a sea voyage. You think of your life as a castle on a solid mountain rather than a ship on a stormy sea. And here's what happens. You know, your life is pretty stable, and when you see other people's lives fall apart in a storm, you just think to yourself that that's because they're incompetent or weak. They lack smarts or guts or discipline, or there's some deficiency in who they are. But then a storm comes crashing in on you, and all of your achievements, all your success, all of your money, everything is washed out to sea. Or you think you know, you think you know your own heart or your spouse's heart or your business partner's heart or your friend's heart, but there are deep, dark, cold things down there, things that can suddenly come up and tear your life apart. It's because you think you can get across the sea without Christ at the center of your boat. And here's the weather report. There's always a storm coming. Then on the other hand, there are people who say, hold it, Tom. I, I get it. My, my life is already a storm. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm out of control, and I have absolutely no idea what to do. 
The text is basically teaching us that it doesn't matter, really, how high the waves, how steep the pitch, how strong the winds, how severe the storm. With Christ at the center of your life, he gets you through. He's sovereign. He has that kind of power. But we can't stop there. If we stop here, he's like a powerful wizard or a magician walking on the water through a storm. You want him in your boat, and that just makes sense, but it's, that's not all. To call him Lord means he's sovereign, but it also means he's, secondly, ultimate Lord. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And this is a case, what he says here is radically more amazing than what he's done here. He says in the ESV, it is I. And we kind of have to have, you know, take compassion and pity on the translators here. Jesus says a lot of things that if you translate them word for word, leave us sort of scratching our heads. But here he says, ego emi, I am. When he says... I am, he's taking God's name as his. He's taking the name that God used to show the deepest secret mystery of his godness to Moses when at the burning bush. He said, who are you? Who who can I say sent me? And he said, I am. What he's not saying, he's not saying I was because he has no beginning. He's not saying I will be because he will never change. You can't say God will be something. Will be infers that God would change and be other than he is right now. When God says I am, He's not only saying, I have no beginning and I have no end, but he's saying, I'm perfect and I will never change. See, in the end, he's saying, I am just because I am. I'm not because of anything, I'm my own cause, I'm my own condition. I don't exist because I'm the cause for all existence. I don't just exist because of something, but rather something, everything exists because of me. He's saying, I am absolute omnipotent God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, and I'm also flesh and blood. This demands that we see him not just as a power. That's why he's strolling along in the storm, not struggling against it through the storm, because he's not just a source of great power. He is the source of all power. All power. Physical, political, Electrical, chemical, all power, 
is on loan from him to us. Therefore, to say that Jesus is Lord is not just to say that because he has power, because he is power, and has come into my life to, to help me, rather, he is the ultimate authority, and when he comes into my life, he must be the center of my life. I, he must be on board. It doesn't matter what else I want to do or what other things I love because loving him, obeying him, following him has absolute, unconditional, unconditioned authority in my life. Jesus Christ's claim here pushes us then into two all-or-nothing situations intellectually and personally. First of all, what does it mean that it's an all-or-none situation intellectually? Here we go. It's because you can't, with any kind of intellectual integrity, accept anything that he says without also accepting everything he says about himself. If you reject the idea that he's absolute Lord over your life, then you cannot accept anything he says about anything else with any kind of intellectual honesty. Now look, there are very few people in the world who say, you know, everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was bogus. Most people love the things that Jesus said. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, flowers, lilies of the field, kings, slaves. I, mean, I can't get enough of his stories. But the typical person in our culture today says, you know, I like a lot of his teaching, but I just can't swallow the idea that he somehow is God. And here's a huge problem with that notion. Because everything he did and everything he said is interwoven with self-centeredness. And there's really no problem calling it self-centeredness. Jesus Christ claims to be the judge of heaven and earth. He claims to be the creator of heaven and earth, that every sin everyone does to anyone else is a sin against him. Jesus Christ said, I'm older than Satan. I saw Satan uh, fall from heaven. And these are all deeply interwoven. He doesn't just walk on water. He claims the name of God for himself. Nothing he does or says is all by itself. They're all interlaced with huge claims about himself. So you have no intellectual honesty for rejecting what he says about himself and accepting, therefore, anything else he says about anything else. These self-centered claims are the very basis for everything he says and does. When Jesus says, here's forgiveness, man, we, we love that. But it's based on the idea that he has the authority to give that forgiveness. You can't forgive someone unless you're the one who's been offended. You're the one who's been sinned against. 
And so here's the rub. You, me, sinned against our mom and our dad and our sisters and brothers and boss and coworkers and friends and classmates and lovers and spouse, children's and neighbors and customers. We've sinned against all these people. Where are you going to go to get forgiveness unless there's someone you've sinned against every single time? If Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, if he's creator, then every single sin against every person is a sin against their creator. And every sin against your own heart is a sin against your creator. So the only place we can possibly go to get complete forgiveness is if he said he was who he said he is. It all hangs right there. We love the things he said, but they're all, all, entirely based on who he said he is. And then look at his death on the cross. If he was just a great teacher, a moralist, an example for us, that's not just a tragedy, that's disgusting. How dare God do that to him? This is all jacked up. Or if you say, well, you know, God didn't do that to them. He did to him. He did it as an example for all of us of sacrificial love. Well, then he's nothing but a masochist, and it was suicide. But if he is God Almighty come in the flesh, if that's who he is, then this is something voluntary, sacrificial, death. And that makes it entirely something else. If he's not who he says he is, then the cross is a hopeless calamity and all of his teaching is meaningless and all of his offers are worthless. That makes it all or nothing intellectually. You cannot intellectually justify rejecting the idea that he is the absolute sovereign of the universe and accept anything else he says. So what's the implication? It's because secondly, this is an all or nothing situation personally, not just intellectually, but personally. It means, if he, it means he cannot be at the periphery of your life. He's either at the center of your life or nowhere at all. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he should be at the center of your life. Many people have said that, most famously C.S. Lewis, but nobody has said it quite as clearly as the unlikely character created by Flannery O'Connor in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. The unlikely character is a murderer named Misfit. And... He's, he's blowing people away. It's like a 1950s version of Pulp Fiction. It's, it's, it's horrid. He shoots this poor little old lady four times, and then he sits down and preaches at her. I mean, this guy was, uh, 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 he had issues. But listen to what he says. He's been blowing people away, and here he explains why. 
And Misfit says, Jesus Christ has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing to do but throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, then there's nothing to do but enjoy a few minutes you have left by killing someone or burning down his house or doing some other kind of meanness, but there's hardly any pleasure in any of that either. From the lips of a killer comes the insight Jesus has thrown everything off balance. Misfit understands there is no moderation. If he is who he says he is, then there's nothing to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he isn't, then who on right on earth has the right to say that anything is right or wrong or good or just or beautiful or true? Misfit is telling us there's no halfway with Jesus Christ. So he's, he's not just sovereign Lord. He's not just powerful Lord who comes into our life to help us. He is ultimate Lord, which means his life has final authority in mind. So what happens when life is sounding the tornado alarm? You cry out to God. You start to read your Bible. You come to church. You scramble. You start doing something, anything. And when you start then to see who he is, you say, great, now I can be a Christian? No, because here's another problem. He's not simply a powerful Lord. He's not simply the supreme divine authority. He's not just ultimate Lord. He's something else. He's the holy Lord. Sovereign, ultimate, holy. Look at what happens. When they had rode, verse 19, when they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Here's the implication. And then, coming near the boat, and then they were frightened. They weren't scared before Jesus showed up. It doesn't mean that they, they didn't realize it doesn't mean that they didn't realize they were in danger. There was danger. And among the disciples are some really salty sailor fishermen that are real experienced maritime, you know, boat handling hands. And because of the hills uh, to the west and the north of the Sea of Galilee, it sits down in this saddle, uh, kind of one-sided saddle uh, valley, and the weather patterns move uh, generally from the west and north to the south and east, they all form up on the other side of the hill. So you don't know they're there until they just pop open, pop over, and it, it's, it's crazy with sudden storms on that body of water. They'd all seen it before. They'd been in danger. But it's not until Jesus shows up that they're frightened. Why? I mean, they say, whew, he's here. We're safe. Here he comes. No. They're Frightened, and I want you to think about this. They're terrified because they realize they are now in the presence of something holy and utterly other. Holy with a W. Holy other. When Moses 
met God at the burning bush, God said, I am, and Moses hit the dirt because of his holiness. Now, just as the holiness was revealed to Moses in a fury of fire, so the holiness of Jesus is revealed to the disciples in the fury of water. What is holiness? Holiness is the aspect of God in which we see he is, W, holy, entirely other than us. He's above us and beyond us, not just bigger than us, not just better than us. Oh, no, his holiness is so much greater that when you encounter it, the automatic response is a sensation of being lost, undone, wrecked, ruined. In his book, The Idea of the Holy, anthropologist Rudolf Otto studied human beings in all of the world's religions or at least the vast majority, and he came up with this amazing insight, and he called it the deep ambivalence of people to the holy. Here's what happened. He found out that when people begin to experience the presence of the supernatural, they feel exactly at the very same time both attracted and repelled. Why? Think of it this way. There's one aspect of our souls that, when created, was sort of purpose-built to need the glory of God. We want God. On the other hand, we have a second aspect of our souls, capacity to make a choice, and we always want to choose to be our own lords and masters. We want God, and we want to be in control. And what that simply means is when we come close to God, we are deeply committed to the idea. That's another way of explaining sin. We are deeply committed to the idea that though God may be there, we don't really want him. God may be better than we are, but we're really not sinners that need to live by grace alone. Even though God may be more powerful, we're not people who absolutely want to depend on him every second of every day. When we get close to God, we begin to realize the way we've been living is wrong, and therefore we're traumatized by the holy. That's why there was a much greater storm in their hearts than there was on the sea. They feel more in peril around Jesus than they did in the storm. Why? What makes storms? I mean, you watch the Weather Channel, right? Storms happen when opposites meet. Cold, dry air mass coming down from the Canadian Rockies meets warm, moist air boiling up from the Gulf of Mexico right here in Tornado Alley. High pressure connects with, collides with low pressure and boom, the heavens explode. 
And in the storms of life, we desperately need God, yet we desperately want to control our own lives. When storms go, pop up, they show us we need God. But when we start to get near God, another storm happens inside. We cry out, I need God, but this idea of sin and being lost, that's so old and primitive, isn't it? See? As soon as we start to get close to God, we're offended. And when you start to get near the real God of the Bible, there's a storm inside that's far worse than any storm outside. A storm inside of guilt, despair, shame, rejection, pain, never being good enough. Maybe just a terror at even the claim that you're a lost sinner or anger with it. And we're offended. And the storm rolls on. So how do you get through it? Here's the answer. Because Jesus is not just sovereign Lord. He's not just ultimate Lord. He's not just holy Lord. Well, actually, because he is those three things, he is something else. If he was only a Lord and nothing else, then we're all sunk, and here's why. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, it is I, don't be afraid. In the Greek, there are just four words. I am, period, no fear, period. And that shocked them. Because the Old Testament, whenever God shows up and says, I am, maybe an angel will tell people not be afraid, but he doesn't. In the Old Testament, he shows up in the burning bush and everywhere else when he shows up, people cower, faint, and sometimes even die. But here's Jesus doing the exact opposite of what God says in the Old Testament. So the implication is, I am, therefore, don't be afraid. Some scholars say this is the moment where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, or the Old Covenant terminates and the New Covenant originates. That's just what some people say. He's saying, and we've got to bolt this tight down to our soul. My holiness, instead of being a threat to you, which is how we automatically feel, instead of being a threat, it's not. And you'll find that my holiness is not a threat, but rather a comfort. Let's find out why. It's possible the white heat of my utter purity to be an assurance rather than a searing pain and horrible threat? How could that be? Here's the answer. Does Jesus walk through every storm? We immediately want to say yes, but friends, no, there's one he didn't. Several times, Jesus likens himself into an Old Testament character. 
that we find in the book of Jonah. Several times he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When he was on the cross, almost for sure he was thinking of that great psalm, Jonah cried out in the belly of the fish. Why was Jonah in the fish? A storm of God's wrath for his disobedience had come to him and he was thrown into the water and swallowed by the fish. And when he's down there in the belly of the fish, he cries out, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. On the cross, he's in effect saying, there's one storm in which I will sink, and I am sinking. There's one storm in which the waves and the billows will swallow me. I won't walk over them. I'm going under in the only storm that can really kill you and me. It's the storm of God's eternal justice. I'm going under these waves. It's because I sank in the only storm that can really drown you that you're going to be able to walk with me through every storm life will ever throw at you. He's quoting Psalm 42, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In other words, he's not only our Lord, he's our Savior. All other founders of every other religion said, do this and you will live, but Jesus Christ came and actually lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, and here's what's so cool. Here's how you can know that you have been transformed by the gospel, by the power of God. And that you're not just a religious person, you're not just a good person, but you're really trying to live into what Jesus has for you and means that he is your Savior and your Lord is that the holiness of God is now a comfort to you. Everybody likes the power of God. Everybody, you know, needs a spiritual benefit. Everybody wants the mercy of God and to have a clean conscience. Everybody needs the wisdom of God to know what to do in a tough situation. But I don't want the holiness of God because, man, that just makes me feel unwise or stupid or wrong or guilty or dirty or condemned. But the way that you know that you know down deep in your knower that you understand grasp and have been grasped by the gospel is the holiness of God is a comfort. You understand Jesus is not just the example that we're supposed to live up to, but the substitute who died for you. He sank to the bottom for you so you will never have to. He saved you from the storm of yourself. And John writes later in a letter in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. He doesn't just say he's faithful and merciful to forgive sins. He says, for God to fail to forgive if God were to fail 
to forgive, he would be unjust. And he's not going to do that. God is so holy that he has, therefore, to receive us. Why? Because if Jesus Christ, by going under the water, paid for our sin, then it can never be paid for again. God would be exacting two payments if you thought you had to pay for your own sin. Because because of the holiness of God, he cannot be paid twice. This means the holiness of God is not against you. The holiness of God is for you. If he refused to abandon me in the only storm that really could take me out, if he went under the real waves and all the real billows for me, then he's not going to abandon me now or ever. If you think that he'll abandon you because you haven't been good enough, haven't worked hard enough, that you somehow have to clean up your life and you're going to read the Bible and maybe now be sure that you, you know, he'll listen to you when you pray and you, you try to strike a deal with God. You don't, you don't get the gospel. I'm here to say, man, hear the word of the Lord. Please relax in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop striving. If you find yourself striving, you're not really sure about all of this we're talking about, Lord. If, if you're not sure that you're a Christian, if you'd like to know, here it is. Simply realize you're not any more able to satisfy the standards of righteousness of a holy God than they were able to row across to the other side of the lake. Realize that by allowing Christ into your life, into your boat, is really a way of not saying, now help me live a better life. Give me a second chance so I can prove to you I'm really good. No. Because look, what happened when they got into the boat? When we wrap it up. Does it say the wind died? Nope. Does it say they kept rowing? Nope. It says, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It was there. I don't understand it. I'm just reporting it. It was in a storm. Now it was safely at shore. See, to follow Jesus Christ does not mean he gets in the boat and helps you live a better life. It means immediately you're alter totally, completely, ultimately, extravagantly accepted don't be afraid of letting him in. He'll take you to a shore you can't possibly imagine. Sovereign Lord, ultimate Lord, holy Lord, Savior. Let's pray. And as I do, if the musicians and servers would uh, please come forward. Father, I ask you to help us see your son this morning as, as our so sovereign, ultimate, holy Lord. And that that doesn't crush us because he's more than Lord, he's our Savior. We pray you'd show us how to really make 
him central in our lives. And that to trust him ultimately means to relax into his arms. It's to finally realize that we are utterly and entirely safe. We had prayed that you would help us to come to the table again this morning or maybe for the first time and take these transforming realities as represented in the bread and the cup into our lives and to follow you utterly at peace in the middle of the storm because you are with us. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and our Savior, our Rock and our Redeemer, our Captain in the storm. Amen. Each and every week at the Gateway Church, we celebrate the Lord's table by remembering to, in memory of him, take bread and the cup, symbols, remembering who he was and what he did for us. If you would, please stand to your feet. And when we're complete with the creed, if you'd exit to the sides come down and receive the elements. By intention, take the bread, dip it in the cup, receive what he has for you today. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be a regular attender. But in the summary of our faith in this creed, you must remember and believe this or all of this means nothing. So let's confess our faith today in the creed out loud. Would you recite with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Do you believe this? I do. Then come and receive what the Lord would have for you today. Come, let's remember. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.